I remember one of my first childhood memories, I was barely a year old and it was the first Christmas that we spent on the East coast and uh, there ain't no party like an East coast kitchen party. And when you are surrounded by family members who are just coming together and they're all playing a different instrument. My grandfather was on the accordion. One of my uncles was playing guitar. Another one was playing a penny whistle. The, my dad was on the banjo. Somebody was in the corner playing spoons and just rocking out in the pure joy that comes with that. Everybody singing, everybody was singing along, everybody knew the lyrics. And I was barely a year old and I can still remember that to this day. That is a locked in memory. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Set Lusting Bruce, your podcast all about Bruce Springsteen, his music, and mostly his fans. I am your host, Jesse Jackson. We are getting off the Bruce train, though he will come up as he normally does. We are in comedy train, musical train, a little bit of everything. Tyler Foley, welcome to the podcast. Oh, Jesse, it's an absolute joy and a pleasure to be here. I'm looking forward to seeing where this little conversation meanders and what sunsets we can chase. Yeah. What's I always like to pull back the curtain. And so Tyler and I are mutual members of a website that connects podcasts. You throw out that you're looking for guests and you throw out that you want to be a guest. And then there is this connection and you go, Hey, it is almost like speed dating for podcasters. <laughs> and so there are this, you throw it out there and then politely there are sometimes this host decided to decline your invitation. <laughs> and you're like, okay, I guess it's me, not them. And then other times we get people that go, I'm not sure. And then others like you, Heck yes, this sounds like a blast. Yeah. So thanks for joining me. What I'm saying, Jesse, is I was happy I swiped right. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> All right, tell us a little about yourself. For anybody who doesn't know, and that'll basically be everybody who's listening, I am a former child actor. I am an author of the number one bestselling book, The Power to Speak Naked. I've been performing in film and television and stage since I was six years old, which makes this my fourth decade of doing it. And a father, a son, a husband, a seeker of warm beaches and a lover of fine chocolates. And I love music in all of its forms and capacities. I am that annoying person when you ask, what genre of music do you like? I'm like, I like it all. And I'm not one of those ones who then has the asterisk or the qualifier where they're like, hey, except for jazz, I could do without that. Or eh, without country. Or I don't really like classical. I like it all. I am or a I consumer can, of yeah. all things music. Yeah, I, you'll get that right. I like it all, maybe except hip hop. Or, or maybe classical. Or maybe not opera. And yeah. then it's... Uh, yeah, and I think depending on the time, 
I think all music at times we go, eh, I don't like that piece of music. And then others you go, oh, if this is what blank is supposed to be, I guess I do like it. Yeah, it's like trying tiramisu for one one time and being like, I don't like that coffee taste. And yet it may not be the world's greatest or even best. It might be the worst that that you've ever had. And so I, I'm always one of those. You need to delve deep into a genre before you can or cannot decide if you like it. And I have found that it's exactly that. There's always pieces within a genre that I don't like, but I find more often than not, there's pieces within any genre that I'm like, I can see the genius behind this and I love this music. So I have a friend who was lucky enough to go to Harlan Ellison's house one time. And for those of you who don't know, Harlan Ellison is a very has now moved on to the next plane, but a a very famous um, speculative fiction writer, worked in tons on TV, just someone who did not suffer fools easily. And my friend was at his house and they were going to get food. And Tom, they were asked, what do you like? And Tom said, I'm allergic to shellfish, and I don't really care for Chinese food. And Harlan's like, where are you from? I'm from Ohio. Then you've had nothing but crappy Chinese food. We're getting Chinese food, and you're going to love it. (laughs) And Tom did. He said, it's still not my favorite, but at least I could go, you've just heard crappy opera. That's why you don't like it. Yeah, if you don't like opera, you've heard crappy opera or vice versa. And it's funny because I had that same experience with my wife around food she uh, she was like i don't understand your obsession with with pineapple she says pineapple is gross i said no pineapple in north america is gross but i lived in malaysia for two years i know what real pineapple is supposed (laughs) to taste like now and i agree with you north american pineapple is awful so when we went to asia i was best man at one of my friend's weddings and he was getting married to thailand we i made my wife fly with me over to Malaysia and we, and not that we couldn't get pineapple in Thailand, but I just wanted to show her Malaysia while we were there. And we'd have fresh cut pineapple on a bamboo skewer on the beach. And I'm like that you should bite in pineapple. You should bite into, and the juice should just explode onto your face. And you do not get that in North America. Yeah, no, they're just, if you don't like music, Try to find a song within that genre. Listen, expose yourself more to it instead of just assuming that you don't like it. Absolutely. What? Why were you in Malaysia for a couple of years? I had originally gone over with a girlfriend and then stayed. Okay. <laughs> it was. Nice. A, it's a, here's the thing. It is one of the most beautiful countries on the planet. I think it is a symbol of what the world could be. It is a perfect blend of religious and political ideologies. It has some of the greatest, most friendly, beautiful people on the planet. It is a melting pot in the most essential of ways. And frankly, I can tell you what the temperature is going to be today. And I can tell you what it's going to be tomorrow. And I'll tell you what it'll be next month and next week and next year, because it just doesn't change because it will always be. 92 degrees with 90% humidity, and it is gorgeous. That sounds cool. All right, so I always like to start at the beginning. So you mentioned that you were in the entertainment industry very early, but 
we'll get to that. But growing up, where did you grow up and what kind of music did your family listen to? What were your parents listening to when you were a youngster? So I grew up in a very small rural town in southern Alberta, which is basically the Canadian equivalent of Texas. And but my mom and my dad were not rural. My dad was from the East Coast and listened to a lot of Celtic influenced East Coast like pub tunes, basically. Great big sea and stuff like that. Like it was something with a, a good tam drum in the background going and sea shanties my mm-hmm. dad was a lot of sea shanties and then my mom grew up in metropolitan calgary and grew up she would have her musical influences were 60s and 70s so she listened to a lot of ABBA and Eagles and the Beatles and Stones. And then my dad passed away when I was quite young. I was only six years old. And my mom was in a fairly long period of mourning, actually. She didn't really date or do anything for about four years. And then when I was around 10 years old, she started dating the piano tuner that came to tune our piano. And he was a musician, a country musician incredible country musician, just an unbelievable gifted man. And uh, that was a big influence on me too, because I had this Celtic sea shanty, seafaring music that I loved and which had its influences in Celtic music and classical music and then, and country and folk tunes. And then mom's musical tastes, including Bruce Springsteen and, uh, I remember one of the first albums that I ever got that I like got from me was a birthday present. It was Michael Jackson's bad album. And, and we used to on road trips because we'd go on road trips all the time. If I was road tripping with my grandmother, she would get those classic gold cassettes from the, Mm -hmm. from the gas station. And it was like fifties and sixties classic tunes. So like under the boardwalk and stuff like that would just be playing some beach boys and real heavy influence there. And And then when my mom and I and my sister would go on road trips before she started dating the musician, (laughs) she, uh, we would listen to Huey Lewis in the news, Whitney Houston, the Eagles. And what was the other ABBA on basically replay? Yeah. Um, Yeah. And and so like I had, again, it was this broad I didn't have one set of influences. I had multiple set of influences. And then on top of that, six years old, I started in theater. And by the time I was seven, I was performing in musical theater. So then I had this real Broadway influence too, where I just, I, I fell in love with Broadway and I fell in love with jazz. I just And classical music, my uncle would play classical music to meditate and work. And so I, I fell in love with the classics, Chopin, Brahms, Mozart, all of them. I just, I loved it all. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out. 
because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. I just finished reading the Ron and Clint Howard book they just published about their early careers and acting and it's their memoir and I, I wish I could remember the name of it but it, it's really well done talking about because they take turns telling stories so six is young but what why did you get the bug that early and tell me about that journey I'd always so I didn't get the bug I was born with the bug if you ask my okay. mom I was tap dancing in the womb I was a born performer. I was that okay. kid who at three years old was like, look at me doing little magic shows, puppet shows, improv stuff, like whatever I could do to entertain family during family events. It was in my blood. And my dad, before he passed away, was a real performer himself, although not professionally. He played banjo. He sang. I remember one of my first childhood memories, I was barely a year old and it was the first Christmas that we spent on the East coast and uh, there ain't no party like an East coast kitchen party. And when you are surrounded by family members who are just coming together and they're all playing a different instrument, my grandfather was on the accordion. One of my uncles was playing guitar. Another one was playing a penny whistle. The, my dad was on the banjo. Somebody was in the corner playing spoons and just rocking out in the pure joy that comes with that. Everybody singing, everybody was singing along, everybody knew the lyrics. And I was barely a year old and I can still remember that to this day. That is a locked in memory. So I, I performance was, I think was always part of it. My, and again, my dad was a teacher. My grandmother was a teacher. So I think there's an, I, an underappreciated art of performance in that, because if you need to educate people, you also need to entertain people. You need to be able to engage and part of engagement is entertainment. And so I think it, it's in my blood, it's in my DNA. And so I, it was one of those things where very early on, particularly in elementary school, my first grade teacher, Mrs. Nielsen, had put me in our Christmas pageant the nativity, I got to play Joseph. And then in the Easter pageant, I, I got to play Peter Rabbit in between the Christmas and Easter pageant was when my father passed away, he passed away February 10th of that year. And so I, 
my teacher could really see where I had this passion for it. And when my dad passed, he being an educator was very known, very well loved within my community. I grew up in a very small community at the time. There was only about 4,000 residents. And so everybody knew everybody. And it was, and he was a leader within the community too. He was part of active 2030 and was just very heavily involved. And I think as part of the process to help my mom, Judy had said to my mom, Tyler could probably do this. This might be a good outlet for him. You might want to encourage that. And, uh, and then independently, my uncle had overheard one of the casting directors in the city because my uncle worked for the city of Calgary as a cartographer. And at the time, City Hall was right across from the main arts complex. He'd gone for lunch and had overheard the casting director complaining about how hard is it to find a little boy to play Tiny Tim. And he was like, how hard, how little does this boy need to be? Because my nephew is wee and tiny. So that, that really set me on my course and my path. Was Christmas Carol the first show? Darn tune. It was my first professional show. It was the first professional okay, yes. show I did. I'm thinking of Kevin Pollack's book, and he talks about that on his podcast when he was still doing the interview podcast about look at me syndrome that some kids have it and some don't. And uh, so that's cool. Um, talk through me that. So did you do mostly stage performances early on? Theater? Early on, it was, yeah, it was from about seven years old to 12 years old it was strictly theater and then in 1991 unforgiven started filming up this way and i got to be on the technically the first film set that i was ever on was the original was superman 2 okay the filmed in my hometown too and i was an extra me and my my neighbor slash babysitter martin took me down because he got paid to be an extra and he was supposed to babysit me that day. So I'm in a pram. You don't actually see me. <laughs> He's just walking back and forth. So that was the kind of the first show that I was ever on. But uh, the first one that I have a memory of, actually, that's not true. I think the first one that I was technically on was Dead Bang. And then from there, I think Unforgiven and Legends of the Fall a couple of those other ones where I got to do a little bit of background work. My neighbors were the horse wranglers and stunt coordinators for it. So I got to do a little bit of, of work on that end and start to see what film was like. And then in my later teens, that's when I really started to do a lot of film work and when most of the credits that are on my IMDb page show up. The What's your first what was your first lines where you actually had a speaking part? You weren't just an extra. The first spoken line that I had. So I did a lot of commercials where I was silent on camera where I saw I was the lead, but you didn't say anything. I remember doing a commercial for actually violence against women. It was a PSA. And I played this teen who was not about to do nice things to his girlfriend. Oh no. (laughs) Yeah. I have a history of playing really mean, douchey characters. Casting against type. <laughs> so, so much casting against type. Actually, I remember the first time my wife ever saw it because my wife met me long after I had retired from acting. Yeah. And she didn't 
she didn't know. And my sister showed her this video. And so she'd known me for 10 years. And she was like, yeah. ooh, that gives me the ooh feeling. He's not like that, but that gives me the ooh feeling. And she was like mad at me for like two days because of the character that I played. Yes. <laughs> bizarre. But I think the first like actual speaking delivery line that I would have had God, I don't even know what it would have been because there are so many and they just blend. Sure. If I had to take a stab at it, probably some one of the teen shows that I was on, Just Deal or, oh God, what was the other one? Sausage Factory or together one of those ones was probably the was probably close i'd have to check my mdb whatever whatever shows up in around 1999 2000 was probably the first credited one that i got and you got to be true calling i saw oh yeah elijah douche is awesome she's one of the most underrated actresses on in hollywood period i i obviously i fell in love with her when she was faith and i know i just it's by default, if she's in a series, I'm going to watch it. And uh, I really loved that series. And yeah, and I'm glad to hear she is that nice. Oh, she's she is the consummate professional. She is she's one of those people who could entirely have the world's biggest ego. And yet she's so down to earth. She's so humble. She's so natural. She's so good to work with too. Oh, man. She gives so much to a scene that she elevates everyone around her in just an amazing way. I can't say enough good things about her. And I only, I barely had a line in it. I, I am a flash in the pan for one episode that I just, it's barely worth mentioning, but yeah. I did get to be around that set a lot and she was phenomenal. And- Lynn Hawwire, I'm going to get Glenn's wrong now. He's one of those guys, right? Uh, he's been in everything. And he talked about that the person at the top of the call sheet sets the tone so much. Yes. That even if you are someone in a minor role or even someone on the cat, a crew, he said that person sets the tone for the experience. I think the same way that business leaders – whether you're a CEO or an executive or even a manager of a team, you set that tone of what is going to be acceptable and what's going to be felt. Yeah. I would give one asterisk to that. I think that is a thousand percent true on episodic TV. Yeah. That that first person at the top of the call sheet is setting the tone yeah. because the other leadership uh, rotates, right? So your director is right. changing. Now, uh, the, to some of those, you'll have a showrunner or you'll have an, a producer or an executive producer who probably has a big hand in it. But I think the lead becomes yeah. the face of that. I think on film, it's a little bit different. I bet that the director is yeah. who sets that tone. And I've experienced this firsthand with some incredibly great directors and some less than phenomenal ones that have really created what either is or is not a fantastic experience. So we're going to fast forward. You've decided you, I, I assume the look at me bug never goes away. 
but you decided that you wanted to do something else when you grew up? Yeah. Yeah. The funny thing is, is I did it for 20 years. The look at me bug never does go away, but it's funny how it morphed. I'm actually an introvert, so I really don't like public interaction. So I like look at me under my terms. <laughs> okay. Look at me from afar while I'm on stage and then don't bother me. Okay. <laughs> well, that was interesting, but I did, I, after 20 years in the business, I remember being about 25 and growing really complacent with, with the craft and just, I'd been doing it for so long that I just stopped caring. And one of the nice things about being a young performer prior to me turning 18, I, most of my, the money that I earned went into trust and my mom being a very smart financial mind actually put my trust because you can set it to unlock at 18 or 21 or 25. She unlocked my trust at 25 and which is good because if I, if I'd have gotten the money at 18, I would have spent it all on Lego drum kits and goalie gear. That would have been, it was just gone. And it's same at 21. It would have been the same list. And now that I'm 44, it's still the same list. That's what I spend my money (laughs) on. But at 25, I was like, I will use this money and I will use it for its intended purpose. And I will go back to school. And so I got an engineering discipline specialized in photogrammetry which for anybody who doesn't know is a fancy way of saying picture maps. So anybody who's ever clicked on satellite view on Google, that the way that the earth is depicted that way, it has no terrain. It has, it's not 3d it's 2d. So all the terrain relief has been taken out of it. And I specialized in how to do that. And uh, and just loved it. Started my own company doing that. Unfortunately, that company failed, but uh, it was, uh, it was the start of my entrepreneurial journey anyway. Tyler, why engineering? Because from a layman's term, you're going, how much of creativity and artistic is in an engineering degree? I don't see that connection, but is there something that I'm missing? So the interesting thing is, yes, I agree with you. I think there's a lot of engineering disciplines that are very paper driven, but even that, like my wife is an architect. She's one of the most artistic people that I know, but she's also one of the most analytical people that I know. So her drawings are precise and done, but she can freehand. There's no tomorrow. And it's a, she's unbelievably creative, but very mathematically driven. She more specifically, she's more data driven. She, right. if you asked her, she'd say she struggles with math, which I think is hilarious because she's actually really good at it, but she thinks she struggles with it, but she's very analytical. She's data driven, but at the same time has this real artistic component. My daughter is the same way. We had her in one school and we had to pull her out of it. And we were looking at different options. And one of the things that we explored in the first school was her absolute love of all things, arts, media, arts performing arts. She's very artistic, but she, her best subject is also mathematics. And me and my daughter are not all that dissimilar that way. And mm-hmm. so when we were looking at putting her into another school, we were looking at a school, a charter school that specialized in the fine arts. And my daughter's first question to us was, but do they have a good math program? And I was like, oh, I'm so proud of you. I'm my bursting, just bursting yes, with pride exactly. right now. 
And so for me, when I got into there, there are certain disciplines that I would not have gotten into, but civil engineering and particularly what I got into with geomatics and photogrammetry, there is the mathematical component to it because there is a precision that needs to be there, but there is an artistic component because there's a freedom to determine what some of that stuff looks like. So like even the flexibility in cartography, you look at maps, how they can be some of the most beautiful artistic creations on the planet. If given the freedom to do a visual representation of any kind of geographic information is a very artistic and very subjective, uh, discipline. So for me, one of the things that I liked was a solving the problems, but B coming up with ways of representing the data in a beautiful way. And photogrammetry is really cool because I'm an outdoor lover. I'm, I'm a naturalist and I really enjoy camping, hiking, the great outdoors. I grew up just West or just East of the Rocky mountains. The Rocky mountains are just West of me. And I have some of the most pristine country in the world it's world renowned and it's just outside of my doorstep i'm spoiled so to be able to look down from 8000 10000 12000 feet onto this onto a lot of these vistas was a joy and then to get to do it in different ways too like i got to play with thermophotography and various different images imagery and it's just cool it was an interesting use of my artistic side and then my analytical side as well so if we were in a courtroom, the judge may say I'm leading the witness, but I'm going to ask for a little leeway. I can't believe I've told this story so often, but it really stuck with me. A couple of weeks ago was free comic book day. And where, if you aren't familiar, you go into a comic book store and there are certain comics that the different publishers publish at a very reduced rate and the comic book store gives them away and this is the whole idea to try to find that net to fund that next generation of comic book fans and my good friend tom who was the one who was at harlan ellison's house was there doing free sketches because he's an artist and he's he's a writer and a artist and he's published multiple comic book series and so all these kids were coming for free sketches and he's doing sketches. And a lot of them said, I really want to be an artist. And their parents said, yeah, that all they do is draw. That's all they do. That's all they love. And Tom told all of them the same story, whether they were five or whether they were 12. He said, you're going to want to take art classes. And I know that's fun, but take an accounting class because you need to know numbers. You're going to, you're sooner or later going to do a Kickstarter. You're sooner or later going to have to figure out what you're going to charge. And if I had taken an accounting course, that would have been made it a lot easier for me. Take a speech course. You're going to have to communicate. You're going to have to sell yourself. You're going to have to listen to your client and understand what they're saying so you can generate to the page. And lastly, spend an hour a day working on what you hate to draw. Yes. He said, because it's easy to draw what you love. For example, I don't like drawing horses. I got hired to draw my little pony. <laughs> and that makes that kind of wraps the story up in a bow. So as I'm leading the question, how much of your business life and as you move on to coaching, 
was your time as a performer helped fund that skill sets for you? I think it's critical. And it's, I'm glad that Tom is pointing out to everybody that they need to take a speech class as a public speaking coach. <laughs> yes. I agree a thousand percent yes. selfishly, but it's actually one of the reasons why my wife and I chose the school that we chose for my daughter because they mandate public speaking from kindergarten. Yeah. So you don't have it. And I think that's beautiful. One of the reasons why I am so confident on stage, I believe, is because I was on stage before I knew to be afraid of it. And I think it's important because fear is a learned behavior. And if you don't believe me, anybody who has a child under two knows that they don't fear anything. We tell them what is supposed to be scary, and then they learn that that's scary. And if you never tell a child that speaking in public is supposed to be a frightening thing, they'll never feel it. And one of the beautiful things, too, is the first time you ever experience a standing ovation or applause, you're hooked, and then you can't go back. So having those positive reinforcements up first to so that fears don't have a chance to take root, I think is very important. And for me, I think all of my experiences, starting out in theater young, experiencing loss at an early age and multiple losses too. I was at more funerals by the time I was 10 years old than I think most people who have lived 50 years have been. I they'd become old hat to me. I knew how to get dressed. I knew how to behave. I could even give a eulogy at 10 if I needed to. Mm. And so that, I think a lot of, of all of my early childhood experiences and particularly growing up in the arts too, because I think growing up in a very rural setting, very conservative rural setting, but also participating as a very large majority of my life in a very liberal urban setting gave me the ability to see both sides of an argument, both sides of an opinion. And being in the arts also gave me an opportunity to travel at a very young, very early age, which was encouraged within my family too. I was tour guiding in Mexico with my big brother by the time I was 12 years old. And so to be able to experience multiple cultures, all of these things gave me the ability to be very analytical of information. What is fact? What is opinion? Uh, Be able to form my own opinion, recognize when I am forming an opinion versus stating fact. And all, I think all of these things just led so that when I had my, and even being able to rise from failure, like my first business collapsed literally overnight. Over the course of a weekend, I had a business one day and then no business the next day and was able to, I hate the term, but everybody's using it now, pivot. I, I feel that I was able to adapt as opposed to pivot, but I was able to do it because I, I had this ability to recognize that life does go on and a, an event does not, an end of epoch does not equal the end of life. Yes. <sighs> When did you decide that coaching was something you wanted to do? We're going to talk about your book in a minute, but I think all of us, one of the reasons I have been in the contact center business 
customer service, inbound call centers, a little bit outbound. Probably my first call center job was in 1989. By 91, 92, I was a manager, and I've been in a leadership role ever since. And I think a lot of reasons why I like doing this is, one, I like fixing problems. I think that's why you get into customer services. You like fixing problems. And two, I like working with people. I like finding an employee, a teammate who doesn't think they can do something and you help them learn that they can. And also finding someone whose skill set no one else values and you find a company need and all of a sudden you put that niche together and this person that other people thought they're not worth anything, you've all of a sudden made them down. So I have had the opportunity a couple of times to be like a project manager or an account manager. And I've always stuck with, no, I really like being a, a quote unquote leader. I, you're, I like being a manager. I like being, I, I like working with people. So when did you decide you wanted to start being a teacher and being coach? I, I don't know that I ever made a conscious, this is now the point in time where I do it. I've always naturally been a leader. Okay. I even think of, I remember being cool and yet still being in drama. Yeah. And I've never understood like the Hollywood portrayal or the stereotype of the quote-unquote drama geek, even though yeah. I am self-admittedly very deeply yeah. a, a drama geek, but it was always, I was, it was always cool for me, and I always, and I think I always made it cool because I didn't. I create my reality. Yes, and and I don't know that was, and I don't pretend that that was delusional either. Like I. I because I don't think one thing defines any given human being. And so, yes, I was very involved scholastically. I was a straight A student, but I was also very artistic. I not only did I do the arts, but I played in a rock band. I I was a drummer. I but I tap danced. <laughs> I, and I sang in the choir. I did all these things because they were just passions of mine and I didn't care what other people thought. And because I didn't care what other people think, people gravitated to me because I wasn't look, seeking their approval. I was doing it for my own joy. And then people hung out with me because it was fun to be around me. Yeah. And so I've always had a natural leadership skill set. But to actually like when I decided, hey, shingle up, I'm going to coach people mm -hmm. uh, was actually at the insistence of a really good friend of mine who I met in the fine arts high school who himself defies the typical drama geek because he was not only was he one of the main stars and leads and leaders within the drama program but he was also the star football player and so this i think one of the things that i liked about the school that i went to was that it was it was entirely probable and possible and encouraged to have multiple identities within the school and he actually worked for CTI, the Coaches Training Institute. He was their North American program development manager. And right around the time that my business had collapsed, I always looked to him for advice. He's one of the smartest business minds that I know. Has run multiple companies himself. 
And I asked him, I was like, what, what do you think my next step should be? And he very coach said, what do you feel would bring satisfaction to you? And we started writing. He's like, you understand you're, what you're saying is you should be a coach. He's I do this thing. He said, I'm not saying it because I, of my involvement in CTI, I'm saying this because I see it within you and because I'm involved in CTI. Sure. At, so it was a little bit self-serving for him, but at the same time, he genuinely encouraged me to do it and then never pressured me to take any of the courses or classes. Just was, in, this is a, a sphere in which you may excel. And then, so I started training with CTI, continued doing some training with Radiance Coaches Academy, found where my real skill set was. And the funny thing is, is I'm not a coach. I, I'm a consultant and a trainer. And I have the foresight to know what the difference is because as a coach, I let you come up with your solutions. And as a consultant and as a trainer, I'm telling you what to do. <laughs> and I tell people what to do. I can coach. I have coached and I do coach, but primarily I'm a consultant and a trainer because I'm going to use my analytical side and my creative side, break down where your limiting beliefs are, help you discover them. But then I'm going to tell you what to do and how to do it well and how to be effective in your communication style. How do you find the middle ground between having them, giving them the answer versus them figuring out themselves? And what I mean is often we go, just tell me what to do. But then you've got to make sure that they buy into that role right? You can't, it's easy to say this is your path, but if they don't really believe you, so I think I'm messing up the question, but I hope- No, no, actually, I've got a good answer for you. So I think the key is to have the buy-in first. I never, I'll never coach or consult or train somebody if they're not personally invested. And sometimes that's the financial commitment of actually having to pay me my retainer because it's not small. And some of that is just the, for some people, it's the fact that they actually reached out to begin with Yeah. because I am a very public figure, but I'm not the easiest to track down. Now I have a lot of entryways, but I also have a lot of gatekeepers internally. So if somebody is willing to jump through the hoops, I think that's a determination that they have, they overcome whatever mental barrier initially needed to be done so that the real work can begin. But I would never, yeah, I wouldn't coach somebody until that mental commitment is there. And I think that goes with anything. Like you look at traditional coaching and what we can collegiate coaching or athletic coaching, the athletes who want to excel will come and will do the work. And the ones who don't won't make the cut and will literally not be on the team. And I, I approach a lot of my consulting and training that way. You have to want to be in the room to get better for me to want to work with you because it is a lot of my energy and a lot of my time. So let's talk about the book, The Power to Speak Naked. <laughs> uh, what? Why did you decide to write a book? My agent told me to. <laughs> okay, that's okay. See you. <laughs> You have a a consultant working for you too. That's right. I I was starting to make my way as a public speaker and start to earn 
money, but my agent told me that if I wanted the big stages, if I wanted to earn uh, life-changing income, that it wasn't good enough just to have the program because nobody knew about the program that when you needed a book, that she couldn't book me on to the big stages if I didn't have a book. And, and I had a, a lot of other people, including my friend who had pushed me into coaching, who himself is a twice published author really strongly encourage putting down my expertise into something digestible. And I had the privilege of working with Jerry Robert at uh, speaking with him on stage a few times, and he has a whole program on publishing books. And so I had a lot of influences reminding me that it was the savvy business decision to do. And so the book came really quickly after that once, you know, you can only have the universe drop things in front of you so many times before you're just ignorant for not listening. And yeah. I don't like to be an ignorant person. So <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I, I took it, but the real impetus was my agent saying, no, Tyler, no book, no stage. Yeah. It's one of the things that people check off, right? Yeah. Right or wrong. Uh, yeah. The power to speak naked, how to speak with confidence, communicate effectively, and win your audience. Um, are, I, dumb question. You like how it came out? No. Okay. <laughs> That's why the revised edition is coming out. <laughs> I am always amazed at the positive feedback I get from the people who read it. And I forget that my book is not for me. I am a very good orator. I am an excellent public speaker and I have been doing this for 40 years and my book is not designed for me. My book is designed for the person who is, I will never get up on stage and speak ever. And so when I read my book, I go, this is so juvenile. This is such basic information. This is so foundational. Like why? Like, you could do more, Tyler. You could give more, Tyler. There is more to this. You can explore that. But I forget that it is, A, supposed to be easily digestible. According to my publisher, it is 114 minutes, so it's under two hours to read. I believe the Audible is even less than that. So like, it's supposed to be easy to digest, easy to consume, and easy to implement. That's the other thing, too. A lot of the advice that's put into the 10 chapters is practical and can be done right now. Mm -hmm. And no, I don't like how my book came out, but I absolutely am blown away by the positive response and the feedback from others. And I think that's why I don't try to hide it and try to promote it because it, it is not about me. It's about the people it serves. So let's do a hat trick and... Tom Zoller somewhere is going, why the hell is Jesse talking about me so much? But Tom says, the reason I will never have a tattoo is I, as an artist, I can't imagine putting anyone else's art on my body. And I've never drawn anything that six months later I wasn't happy with. Mm -hmm. So I think that's, I think that's realistic. And I think that's part of the reason why you've had a drive for success. And I do think that 
remembering what it's for does help you go through that. But you said you're going to revise it, right? Yeah, I have a revised edition that's coming out in September. The Power to Speak Naked, Bigger, Longer, and Uncut. <laughs> oh, my. That's funny. That's good. All right. Let's get less serious for a minute. What are you listening to on your is there we've already established that you're doing a wide range of different music, but are there a couple of artists or albums that are you're hitting on a recent binge happy with? So my recent binge was actually the musical that I just finished producing called The Gardener. And the okay. music was written by an incredible singer-songwriter, a Juno-nominated singer-songwriter out of Canada here, Marin Ord. And uh, she wrote this musical that has some of the greatest music I've ever heard ever in any genre, in any genre. I remember the first time we workshopped the show, I was, we were just reading the script and then she would play the music in the back. So like we didn't sing or anything. It was just like a placeholder and this is how it goes. And then this song will be, and then you'd listen to the song and then you pick back up in the script. And there was a song, Take My Hand. And that song got stuck in my head and I, I was singing it for the next three months. And I didn't know that it wasn't a song on the radio. And so when we did the next workshop and we all started to learn the music and sing it, I played the backing track for the first time when I was prepping for the rehearsal for the workshop. And I was like, that's the song. It's been stuck in my head. And I knew instantly that I had to be more involved in that production because the music that she wrote, it is the world's worst earworms. And there's so many, there's at least five songs in that, that it's like Hamilton where you just, it gets stuck in your head. Or for me, like ragtime where I will sing multiple, multiple tunes from it on an ongoing basis. They become lullabies literally and figuratively for me, because I remember when my daughter was born, I actually sang her lay Miz and ragtime as her lullabies and i'd go through this set list that didn't change and so that that's the one that stuck but i also don't listen to contemporary radio i have program i have channels programmed on sirius xm and again super eclectic yeah. so when i'm working on as in business, when I'm writing audit reports or when I'm having to put together training material or training programs, I'm listening to Baroque music, usually on a couple of different sets, set lists that I've put together and very, and they're, they range too. Like if we're talking music from late 1700s to contemporary classical music too. Mm -hmm. And then on the, like on my, I just thinking of my programming on Sirius XM, I've got what is it not lithium so the 90s alternative and then right next to lithium is class is broadway and then country and then i have a classic rock station and then road trip radio which i just love because it's such an eclectic blend of, of all I, kinds. I agree road trip radio is by the way all of those but yes there is something fun about road trip radio because they will just play everything little steven said that he wishes and he says it'll no happen but he wishes sirius would do a shuffle channel which yeah. has 
everything from all their channels music and just would play a song a song and just yeah i said god that would be just a blast because i think know- it would be wonderful and you know why it will never happen yeah because you would never have ratings for it no yeah because there would be people who would always tune out which i think is incredibly and i know that to be a fact i know that, that is why that pro- show will never program but i think it's a very myopic view because i already do that with my sirius xm channels yeah like i was thinking of us jesse yes three days ago when we were i was just because i knew this show was coming up and i was giggling and i was like because you know that i'm a music generalist yeah and i remember laughing because i was doing a two-hour drive and i remember starting on kids bop because that's what was on the radio for my daughter when i dropped her off for the bus yeah so i was listening to kids bop and then i have my favorites that are come up and acdc big balls came on and i was like i've got big balls we got big balls and i just i hit that and i was rocking out to that and then sarah brown eyes came on the broadway channel so i hopped over to sarah brown eyes sang my way through that right after sarah brown eyes on broadway was avenue q so I sang along to Avenue Q, but midway through, like three quarters of the way through that, ABBA came on. So I listened to Dancing Queen and then the Eagles came on and there was two, the Best of My Love and Hotel California. And I'd listened to Hotel California a lot in the last couple of days. So I listened to Best of My Love. And then Tunnel of Love, Bruce Springsteen came on and I was like, I'm going to have to listen to that just for Jesse. And then ACDC came back on and I listened to like modern ACDC was, I think it was either Thunderstruck or Hell's Bells. I can't remember which one. And then Welcome to the Jungle came on. And so I listened to that higher by Creed and I popped over to that. And then John Williams came on the Disney channel. So I listened to the Imperial March. And then stayed on Disney for a little bit. And I think I sang along to Hunchback and Notre Dame and uh, something else. But that's... See, that's that would be so much fun, right? It, and especially on a long car ride, right? You could just sit that and as you're driving, oh, and go from there. So yeah, I think that's a great idea. Yeah. Talk a little bit more about this musical. What's the status of that? What's going on? We just finished a two-week run, basically tester. Most of the audience, the 1,300 people who came to see it over eight performances and 10 days were friends and family. Probably 70% of the audience was friends and family and 30% were word of mouth. It was nice to see that word of mouth worked because um, we ran the show for three days the first week on a Friday and then two shows on the Saturday. And then we had a break and then went Wednesday to Saturday again with two performances on the Saturday. And I remember on Tuesday morning as a producer, looking at the numbers and looking at our Friday night show, it was under 50% sold and being like, ah, I, a, I don't want to be the cast member in that's performing to that audience. I don't want to be the executive who's taking a loss on this show. And I don't want to be the audience who has to participate in that too, because it just, you can feel it. Yeah. 
And by Thursday night, we'd sold out Friday. That's great. Based, based on word of mouth. The majority of our Friday audience had no idea what they were coming to see, but knew that their friends told them that they needed to see it. And it was probably our best audience. And what's the name of the play? It's called The Gardener. And be forewarned, it is a fictional exploration of heavy religious themes. Okay. So the idea of the gardener is that the gardener tends your soul in their garden. And when your flower dies, you can see the gardener and they give you your flower. And that's the signal that you have one hour left to live and deal with, uh, with what you need dealt with within your life. And within the context of this story, the gardener was immortal originally a mortal not immortal but a mortal mm -hmm. originally and the and there's a hierarchy within the angel structure so you have gardeners and miracle makers peace prancers high flyers they all do different jobs yeah. but the high flyers are the ones that are close to heaven and the gardeners are the ones that are heaven on earth and are dealing with mortal issues and this gardener is sent to tend the garden in his hometown where his the love of his life is still around mourning his loss and having to deal with issues within her hometown anyways so it's this exploration of what what happens when you can see your guardian angel and what are the implications of that and uh, just honestly some of the greatest music you can YouTube it now. So that is actually okay. a thing where people can, if they YouTube the gardener, the musical, they can, it's hasn't got a lot of views. I think it's like 172 so far, but it only got posted up last Friday. Okay. And the more people who can see it, the better, Like we can even probably put the link up in the show. Notes. Yes, please. I'm going to. Yeah, yeah. But it is honestly, it's the kind of thing that should be experienced live. Like all music, you and I sure. both know this, right? You can listen to Bruce. Yeah on please be listening to him on a 45 but if you have to other yeah. formats and but it, it's not the same as sitting in in the concert being surrounded by people who are enjoying the music along with you and so this one this one needs to be heard by the masses it is just a phenomenal show right from the opening number send me the link because it didn't come right up i'm looking at youtube so send me the link. I will include that in the show notes. It reminds me a little bit of Piers Anthony had a series of books, The Incarnations of Immortality, where a human took over the role of death and uh, other deities. So I love that premise. And so you've gone through a trial run. What's next, Mr. Producer Man? So the whole point of this was to get it in front of live people and okay. to get enough performances under our belt to test it. The show in its current form is three hours and five minutes with a 20-minute intermission. So its actual runtime is 2.44, and that's just a little too long. So we're just going over it. Me and Marin, who is the playwright and composer, are going through right now and making the edits necessary to bring it down really make the 
story as tight as possible so that people get out of it what they need to. But based on the feedback that we had, three hours is actually not long for it, that most people felt that it was the right amount of time to tell the story. But Marin and I both feel that it can be compressed just slightly. And then putting together a demo and getting it out there, getting it out for people to see it because like all art, it does nothing locked away in a basement. It needs to be experienced by the masses. And this is... This ha- this has life-changing music in it. And I don't say that lightly, and I don't say it because I was involved in it. I got involved in it because of the music. I'm not promoting it because of my involvement. So let's make a deal. When you're ready for the next step, come back, and let's do a whole episode just based on it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, that and, way we and, can promote it. Yeah. Yeah. And again, that next step is getting it into a larger theater with a larger run. I'd like to see a three- or four-week run with six to eight performances a week yeah. uh, in a major center, whether that's Vancouver, Toronto, Chicago, LA, San yeah. Francisco, San Diego, and then get enough of a buzz going that it can be off Broadway and then Broadway. That's awesome. That's great. What have on what should I have asked you that I haven't Tyler? <laughs> I, I don't know. I think we had a really good exploration. I think the only thing you haven't asked me is if Mary gets in the car. That is it. Yes. For those of you, if you are a fan of Tyler's book or his many different, maybe you're one of his clients and you're here checking him out. He did great. We had said we'd have a good conversation. I think we did. I think this was a lot of fun. I end every podcast with the Mary question. Jay Armstrong, who is a retired English teacher, but when he was teaching honors English, he would give his class the lyrics to Thunder Road by Bruce Springsteen. They would go through the lyrics. They would talk about the imagery Bruce uses. They would talk about the themes of the song. They would treat it as if it's a poem, compare it to like Robert Frost and other poets. And then at the end of the day, he would ask the class, does Mary get in the car? So Tyler, that is your question. Does Mary get in the car at the end of Thunder Road? She absolutely does. I I uh, have always interpreted it that way and mostly because of that last line, sit tight, take hold. If she didn't get in the car, there'd be no need to say it. I love and, it. And I think that and I think there's a little bit of pleading at the beginning of that verse with the, oh, come on, take my hand but we're riding out tonight. And I think when you combine that with the last line, sit tight, take hold thunder road, like you, she absolutely, I think in my head, again, the way, one of the things that I love the most about what Bruce Springsteen did with this is that it took years to write this. If you, anybody who knows the story of it, the, the, I think the originally the, the label didn't want the song on the album and wings for wheels was the original title and there is it wasn't mary it was a different name yes so i think over the evolution of the song i think one of the things that bruce did so beautifully with it it is it is as you said it's a poem it's an american poem that is set to music and so the imagery is very similar to that of frost 
or any of the great Poe. The imagery that's laid down within it. And I think the fact that it is that you can close, if you close your eyes and listen to the music and listen to the lyrics and really actually take the time to, to experience it and let that movie run in your head. Every time I hear the line, sit tight, take hold. I see him reaching over, over that console and where a gear shift would be and holding, holding on to the love of his life and holding her hand, sit tight, take hold. I've got you. We're going to, we're on this journey together. And I just, I can't help but feel that she had to get in the car for that to happen. I love it. Great answer. Great answer. All right. If someone wants to reach you, what's the best way? Best way would to be to go down into the show notes and check out the Gardner musical and then my website. But the only way that they can do that, Jesse, is to scroll past the, the little graphic with the five stars and the little comments box. And right. The- those aren't there for decoration. Those are there to be used. So before they yes. go to my platform, Jesse, they're already on yours. So if they love set lusting, if they are listening or consuming your content on a regular basis, I would ask before they come to mine to reward you for yours. And so use that little graphic and give Jesse a five-star review. And that comment box is for your use. Tell him what you like about his show. And be very specific. So that way he can bring you the content that you're enjoying. He can limit the content that you're not. It can help inform where the show goes and how it's being consumed. That helps everybody. It helps you get better content. It helps Jesse put out better content. And it helps me because if more eyeballs are getting on to the show in general, more eyeballs will see this episode. Maybe more people will come and check out The Power to Speak Naked, which you can find by going to seantylerfoley.com. And Sean is spelled the proper Irish way. S-E-A-N-T-Y-L-E-R-F-O-L-E-Y.com. Tell them Tyler sent you. And if you give Jesse a five-star review before scrolling down and clicking on the link in the show notes, if you come to SeanTylerFully.com, right at the top of the page, above the fold, there's an invitation to join Endless Stages, which is my private Facebook group where I go live every Tuesday at noon Pacific, three Eastern, and give live training based on the feedback that we're getting in the group from that week on what my audience wants to hear or learn or consume. And so I go live every Tuesday for 20 minutes and give Tuesday's tips. And that's a live training session. Plus we'll give you a free PDF download of the power to speak naked so that you don't have to spend the 1795 in a bookstore, but you can. And if you're wondering how to buy my book, the answer is in bulk. Yes. And we, we will also give you a access to my drop the mic trainer series, which is seven videos all less than five minutes so you can consume them over a coffee break over the course of a week and they will give you actionable steps to be a more competent public speaker but none of those gifts are for you if you scroll past those five stars in the comment section and don't make use of them no five-star review no free gifts for you what i love and the reason i'm smiling so broadly is i usually end every podcast with i want to hear from you i want your feedback send me an email set at gmail.com i'm on twitter at jesse jackson dfw the show is on set Lessing bruce go wherever you get your podcast then please leave a five-star review because it does make a difference and it is not surprising that over half of my guests who are podcasters will speak up and go yes Please leave a review 
because it is it is so rare and the, I'm talking podcasts that get thousands of downloads and people never think about saying, oh, I really like that. Or I wish you would do more of this. And this should be a two-way communication. Yes. Yeah. If you can blast the restaurant for not including the chopsticks in a <laughs> Yelp review, you can take the time to tell Jesse what you're liking about his show. Oh, I think that should go on the that should go on the show notes. So, <laughs> That'll be the quote, quote of the show. Has nothing to do with about music. Yeah. <laughs> yeah if, you, if you can blast the restaurant for not including chopsticks. Tyler, I I hope you had as much fun as I did. I this did. was this so much fun. Blast. Thank you. Yeah, let's send me the link. I'm going to include it. And let's do this again. Absolutely, Jesse. We'll talk All to right. you soon. Thank you, guys. Talk to you soon. Bye. There we go. Another episode. I'm about to go through a couple of things where you can reach me and give me feedback. Um, so if you want to skip this, I understand. But I do hope you check it out every once in a while. I'm available on Twitter at Jesse Jackson DFW. The show is available at SetLustingBruce. You can send me an email, setlustingbruce at gmail.com. You can send me a voicemail at 469-249-2442. I am currently doing a few other podcasts, a perfectly good podcast, John Hyatt from A to Z, where Sylvan Groth and I discuss every John Hyatt song in alphabetical order. My Babylon 5 podcast is Last Best Hope for Conversation, where Lou, Karen, and I discuss every episode of Babylon 5 in chronological order. I still am doing Next Stop Everywhere, the Doctor Who podcast with my brother in time, Charles Gags. And then finally, How Many Podcasts, the only podcast on the internet that counts, where my buddies and I discuss pop culture. You can go to our Patreon page and support the podcast for as little as a dollar a month. You can go to our Facebook page, like, and please, please go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcast and leave a five-star rating and review for all of the podcasts that I'm doing. It's okay if you don't listen to them, but if you subscribe and rate, it really will make my day better. Thank you, and I will talk to you soon. You just heard the fun talking, hard rocking, music loving, album ranking, fan thinking, joy spreading, lyric reading, story sharing podcast that is the one, the only, said Listening Bruce. The theme for Set Listening Bruce was written by David Rosen, used by permission. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.